it takes a lot of emotional energy for me to gear up for a race. The emotional process of preparing for a race and then having it canceled suddenly with no straightforward outlet for that right away, it's, it's just it is a bit of an emotional process. Hello, and welcome to the July 28th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I've just recently returned home from a family vacation in Ecuador, where we did some touring and a lot of scuba diving in the Galapagos Islands. Over the course of the two weeks that I was away, I only got to run a handful of times, and not at all over the last eight days or so, and you know what? I don't feel the tiniest bit guilty. The reality is, we can get so caught up in our own kind of mini-drama of training and racing, we could drastically overblow the importance of what it is we're actually doing, at the expense of savoring all of the other wonderful experiences that life has for us to avail ourselves of. It's true. I have talked here many times about the importance of consistency in training, but if you followed my story this year, then you already know that the only consistency I've had is being inconsistent. When I've been able to train, I have been as committed as ever, but when I haven't, be it because of health issues or travel, I just haven't done anything for periods of time. In the end, I guess we'll see how much it matters as I have still yet to actually do a race yet this year. I'm reasonably confident, though, that my consistency over the years leading up to this one will give me a bit of a backstop for all of the inconsistency that I've had this year, and I'm hopeful that my performances in the coming months won't be too far off of what I've done before. I guess time will tell. For now, I really just wanted to use this opportunity to remind you all that there is life outside of training and racing, and taking some time, even during the height of the season, to enjoy something different is not only acceptable... It's a darn good idea. Personally, I came back rejuvenated and rested and haven't had any issues at all hitting any of my training targets thus far since I returned on Monday, proving that a short break can be good for your body as well as for your soul. On the show today, the medical mailbag is back, featuring a conversation between myself and my friend and fellow coach, Juliet Hockman. In this episode, we are going to talk about the gut microbiome. Specifically, we'll discuss what that is, how it is impacted by diet, and most importantly, how it plays a role in our ability to perform better at endurance exercise. All of that's coming up shortly. Later on, I'm going to share with you a terrific conversation that I recently had with the amazing professional triathlete Tamara Jewett. Tamara's route to triathlon from star track athlete and Olympic hopeful to corporate attorney and age group champion to full-time professional is yet another fascinating example of how the path to the pinnacle of our sport is rarely a straight line. We talk about that, her win in Oceanside, and her fundraising efforts after the cancellation of the 70.3 in Mont-Tremblant, plus much more, and you can hear all of that coming up in just a short bit. Before all of that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month or so. Most recently, a new episode out just for those supporters featured a conversation with strength and triathlon coach Jen Rulon. In addition, for North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I have a special thank you gift for you in the form of a pretty cool, if I do say so myself, Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So I hope that you'll visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. It's time again for the Medical Mailbag, that segment on the podcast, when I am joined by my friend and colleague, Juliet Hockman, former Olympic rower, current world champion at the 70.3 in sprint distance and triathlon. Juliet, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much, Jeff. Great to be here. 
Yeah, it's uh, always fun to have these conversations. Today, we're uh, not so much answering a question that has been sent in or a question that you've come up with, but rather addressing a topic that is of great interest to me, something that I came across in reviewing the medical literature while I was searching for a topic to write about for Triathlete Magazine. And it involves a discussion about the gut microbiome and how it can impact exercise endurance and exercise performance, a topic that I have thought about in the past, but haven't really spent a lot of time exploring. And when this paper came out just last month, I was really, really intrigued. And I have to say, I was quite surprised by uh, some of the findings, and I thought it would be worthwhile a conversation here in uh, this segment of the program. Yeah, I'm really super excited to hear about this because, of course, as age groupers, we're always looking for that next thing that we can do to help improve performance. And so if there are some pretty easy gains here in terms of just what we do from day to day, I'm sure a lot of people really embrace them. I know I would. Yeah, and I I think sort of a a good place to start is to think about what is the microbiome? It's a it's a, a term that's kind of bandied about. We hear about it from time to time. We it, it's kind of become a little bit in vogue of late because the microbiome has been recognized as something that can have a big impact on our health and well being. I think that we need to recognize that as much as our internal milieu, our, our internal systems are really a sterile environment, there are parts of our body that are technically actually external to us. And the gut is one of those. If you think about the fact that the from the mouth right down through to the anus, that is actually outside of our body, even though it is contained within our abdomen. It's a tube, basically. There is a tube that runs from our mouth. It's the esophagus, then the stomach, then the small intestine, then the large intestine, and out the anus. That is basically a long tube. And the inside of that tube is essentially the outside world. We just allow it passage into our body so that we can extract the things that we want. And so within that tube lives a diverse array of microorganisms. And it turns out those microorganisms are incredibly important to us. It includes predominantly bacteria, but also there are fungi in the form of yeasts mostly. And then there are some viruses uh, as well. And I, I know that that can be something that's kind of hard to wrap your head around, the idea that the outside world lives within our body. But that is, in fact, the case. And it is not sterile. It, in fact, has a very thriving microorganism community. And that microorganism community is really vital to us because it turns out it's really important for helping us digest our foods. As humans, we have a lot of enzymes that are responsible for breaking down protein and fats. But when it comes to breaking down carbohydrates, we only have so many that can do that. Bacteria, however, have a whole host of other enzymes that human beings don't, and they contribute to breaking down things like fibers. Fiber is essentially complex carbohydrates, very long, long chain carbohydrates. And so when you think about when we're racing in uh, a triathlon, we're taking in these long chain polysaccharides. Well, those things don't get digested by us. In fact, what happens is the bacteria in our gut help break those down into the small units of uh, carbohydrate, which we then absorb. And if it wasn't for those bacteria, we wouldn't be able to do that. We wouldn't be able to take advantage of using these polysaccharides. Similarly, bacteria help us by creating or using some of the foods that we ingest. The bacteria use those foods to synthesize vitamins that we need. One of the most important ones is vitamin K. We get that from eating certain types of food that bacteria then synthesize. We absorb that vitamin K and we use that vitamin K to create clotting factors that without them, we would bleed to death. In fact, you may know of people who have problems related to clotting, uh, strokes or DVTs or or any kind of blood clot issues, they take medications that inhibit clotting factors that are made with vitamin K. So that's an example of where vitamin K is so beneficial and how altering vitamin K metabolism can be a medical advantage. So the microbiome, super, super important in our day-to-day lives, but it turns out different in every single individual. It's almost like a unique fingerprint that every one of us has. So I'm imagining, and not to date myself, I'm imagining that inside this long tube that you've described, there's this (laughs) Pac-Man. 
who is basically taking in all everything that we put into our mouth, right? And hopefully most of the time going num, 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 but sometimes going blah and deciding that this is not useful for whatever purpose we want to process it for. I think the best way to think about it is billions of little Pac-Man. Pac-Man, yes, right. That's a great, okay. that's a great way to think about it. And <laughs> if you start consuming things that the Pac-Man don't like or Ms. Pac-Man don't like, <laughs> then there will be other little Pac-Man that will come around that will develop and will supplement and will sometimes displace the Pac-Man. So if we think about Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man as being the good guys, there are little ghosts, the nefarious bad guys who will show up if you start eating things that are not as good for you or as not as good for the little Pac-Man. And as, (laughs) as a result, you end up with ghosts everywhere. And this is how diet impacts our microbiome. What you eat informs the microbiome. You can also alter your microbiome by supplementing what you eat with foods that contain probiotics. So there are a lot of foods that we eat that contain microorganisms that will survive the the acidity of the stomach and get into the small intestine and then actually take up residence there because it's a nice happy place for them. And examples of the most common example of where we can get probiotics is yogurt. Yogurt is an active culture of a lactobacillus, which is a very healthy gut bacteria. And people who have issues related to a lot of gastrointestinal distress, especially in triathlon and races, often are deficient in lactobacillus. And the other bacteria that's very common is bifidobacterium. Those are the two common and healthy bacteria that are, are predominate within a healthy microbiome. Okay, so now that we know that from 30,000 feet, these healthy bacteria are super important for our GI system, essentially, in, to enable it to process um, what we take in through our mouth more effectively. What does that, well, I guess a couple questions. One is, we can't exist on yogurt and kombucha alone. So what do we, what's the best thing to put into ourselves? And also, what do we know about how our nutritional choices affect performance when it comes to the microbiome in particular? Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing, the first part of the question is what can we eat to positively impact our microbiome? It turns out that people who have diets that are very high in fats adversely affect their microbiome because what ends up happening is, is that will preferentially select for a lot of ghosts and displace all the good Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. I really like that analogy. I'm going to run with it. (laughs) And so if you are having a very high fat diet, and we're seeing that now, right, with a lot of athletes who follow these ketogenic type diets, they're eating a lot of high protein, high fats. And what they're doing is they're actually, and there's been studies that have looked at this, their microbiome is not so predominant in lactobacillus and bifidoform bacteria. Instead, they're getting a lot of clostridia bacteria, which are not as beneficial to us for metabolizing carbohydrates and making vitamins. Now, it's not like they're completely absent of the other good bacteria, but they have a predominance or at least a higher amount of clostridia than we would want to see, and that would be in a normal person's gut. The other thing about diet is if you take diet that contains a lot of things that are high in probiotics, so you mentioned kombucha, yogurt is the other one, cottage cheese, fermented foods like pickles, tempeh has uh, probiotics. Those, those foods are all pretty high in probiotics. And if you take them, you can continuously replenish your, your microbiome and help to keep these other things at bay. This isn't to say you can't enjoy meals with high fat. It just means that if your diet is predominantly in high fat, you're going to displace those good bacteria and end up with more of these bad bacteria. So uh, eating well, eating a healthy diet, and there have been studies that looked at the comparison of the microbiome in people who adhere to the Mediterranean diet, a diet we've referred to on this program before as being shown to be one of the healthier diets for inflammation, for long-term cardiovascular health, and now it turns out also for your microbiome because they've looked at the microbiome of people who adhere to the Mediterranean diet and compared it to a common Western diet that's higher in fat, and lo and behold, the microbiome of people on the Mediterranean diet have way more uh, of the good bacteria and all of the good things you would want in a microbiome compared to people on a Western diet. So another reason. The other thing about the microbiome, and I, I forgot to mention this earlier, is microbiome plays a huge role in inflammation. 
these bad bacteria, the clostridia, the other bad microorganisms are actually very involved in breaking down some of the things that we eat and into pro-inflammatory molecules that then get absorbed and then cause inflammation within the human body. So if you think back to the episode where we talked about the role of inflammation, the microbiome has a huge role there as well. Hmm. Okay, good to know. All right. So pickles, got that. <laughs> pickles just seems to keep coming up. Pickles, cottage cheese, yogurt, kombucha, all of those good things. So to go to my second question, are there any studies out there that show that athletes who have, and I don't really know how you measure the quality of the intake of whatever microbiotics you're taking and its effect on performance. So what do you know about that? Yeah. So there have been a few attempts to study this and Probably the best one is the one that I came across just in preparing for this study, and it was titled Aerobic Exercise Training-Induced Alteration of Gut Microbiota Composition Affects Endurance Capacity. Again, a bit of a mouthful, but essentially <laughs> what the title is telling us is that training, aerobic exercise training actually alters your gut microbiota, which is interesting. And that in turn affects endurance capacity. Now, this has been theorized for some time because other papers have looked at the microbiota of, or the microbiome of endurance athletes and especially of elite athletes and have found that the microbiome of elite athletes is very different from the microbiome of not, of more sedentary people. That has previously been attributed to the idea that, oh, well, makes sense. Athletes tend to eat a different diet than sedentary people. And so you would expect that their microbiomes would look different. But other researchers have theorized, well, is there something also about the exercise? Is exercising also changing the microbiome? And, and studies have suggested that, yes, in fact, exercising changes the microbiome. And this study that I came across looked at mice and it took mice and it uh, split them into different groups didn't split the individual mice it, it took mice <laughs> a, a large group of mice and split them into groups okay. i have to be careful with my grammar sometimes mm -hmm. it took these mice in, into three groups and it gave them a diet which they referred to as a vehicle but the the vehicle intake which included probiotics and a, a standard kind of healthy diet. And then it uh, broke them into these groups where one group of mice would be sedentary. Another group of mice would uh, do exercise training, which included the tiny little treadmill, mice on a treadmill, and then also <laughs> mice swimming. Uh, you put mice in, a, in some water and they will swim. And then it also compared these mice to taking antibiotics and exercise training because they wanted to see if they could give these mice antibiotics, which would, which we know dramatically impacts the microbiome and put them through exercise, what would their microbiome and what would their performance look like compared to the mice who were exercising and eating this healthier diet? And the results were pretty interesting. So the first of the results was that in the mice who were sedentary versus the mice who were exercising, but both eating the same diets, the microbiome was pretty different. There was a abundance of healthy bacteria in the mice who were exercising compared to those who were sedentary. There was a abundance of the healthier bacteria, both in terms of numbers, but also in terms of the variety of bacteria. So, so exercise alone seemed to help these mice and provide them with a, a healthier looking microbiome. Furthermore, when you compared the mice who were exercising to the mice who were exercising and getting antibiotics, the mice who were exercising and getting antibiotics were not able to perform nearly as well as the, as the mice who were exercising and getting this healthy diet. So affecting the microbiome with antibiotics dramatically impacted these mice's ability to perform on their mm. little mice-sized treadmill and in the water. Mm. So we see in the study that not only does exercise change your microbiome, but that that microbiome also has a big impact on endurance and performance. And really what was to me the most interesting is they did a transplant of these bacteria. So they took bacteria from the mice who had been eating well and exercising, and they gave that bacteria to the mice who had been exercising and, do, and taking antibiotics, 
And immediately, well, immediately, within a day or two, the mice who'd been exercising and get antibiotics showed dramatic improvements in their performance, suggesting that, mm. in fact, the microbiome had a huge role in the ability of these mice to perform. So okay. you really see how the microbiome has a very important role in allowing us to perform exercise. And the, the authors suggest and they theorize that this just is all about how we are able to digest our carbohydrates that are so necessary as fuel to be able to do our aerobic exercise for long periods of time. So it's not only that, at least in mice and hopefully in humans as well, that exercise is creating a healthier system, but that that healthier system is also enhancing exercise. It goes both ways. Exactly. It's sort of like it just it keeps leveling up. Exactly. Okay. And there's another study I came across from last year that talks about the implications of the gut microbiome in sports. And this one was kind of a review study, talks a little bit about the microbiome and talks about how there have been studies that suggest that microbiome analysis and different athletes have shown that people with healthier microbiomes seem to be able to perform better, but points out that there really hasn't been any significant studies in athletes to allow us to really know whether or not this is cause and effect or whether or not it's a true association. And that is true. In human beings, there really haven't been these kinds of studies. But this mouse study is pretty interesting and right. really does make it look like cause and effect is in fact there and suggests to me anyways, that one more reason why we have to be very, very careful with our diets, that exercise has a very integral role in our overall health and well-being, impacting not just our cardiovascular health, but impacting our gut health. And that together they are in almost a feedback loop, like you said, right? There it's it's a it's a back, it's a um, mutually beneficial kind of arrangement where exercising right. improves microbiome, microbiome then improves our ability to exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's really fascinating stuff. And we know how the gut microbiome seems to be linked. Like we, we've heard for a long time how the gut seems to be linked to all kinds of different diseases. And more and more, we're learning that this is the case, that our gut and our brains are linked and our gut can then have an impact on inflammatory diseases and all kinds of other things. And it seems to be that all of it comes back to this microbiome. Do you have a sense or is there any study out there anywhere you, you started this conversation by saying that every individual's microbiome is really different from the next right even twins i think you said or you mentioned at some point are, are really pretty different do you have a sense for how much the health of the gut is sort of preordained through genetics or is this truly something that we can dramatically affect by our diet one of the factors in our sport, there's so many different factors to success in our sport, but one of them is genetics, right? Like how you're built and, and all that. Do you have any idea if, if your gut is a little bit dependent on who your parents are? It's an excellent question. It's a little bit out of my realm of expertise, and I didn't come across anything that really went into it in detail. Your microbiome is not in itself determined by genetics because it's more determined by what you eat. Okay. Your gut itself, however, your intestines, your stomach, there are genetic impacts on some of those things. Inflammatory bowel disease is a great example. We know that there's a genetic component to that. Huh. However, the microbiome can also affect whether or not inflammatory bowel disease comes up. We know that certain bacteria in the microbiome are actually causative of inflammatory bowel disease. So if you have the genetic risk and you have those bacteria because of what you eat, you're more likely to develop IBD in the long run. So sure. there seems to be sense. a little bit of handshake kind of thing going on here where if you have the genetics and you have the microbiome, you can be either more or less successful. But I'm not aware of whether or not genetics can actually set you up for a better or worse microbiome because it seems like so much of that is determined by your environment and what you put into your body. Because we know that the microbiome varies regionally as well because of dietary differences and because of just where you are. Because remember, your gut is essentially the outside. And so you are exposed to different things and those things can gain entry. Right. Okay. But it's a really good question. And I'm sure somebody is or has looked at this. I just am not familiar of what the overall results are of that. 
Okay. And do you, I remember when my son came back from spending a summer in India and he had had a really bad case of Giardia, we had to work really hard to kind of rebuild that microbiome because his insides were a mess to say the least. And so there was a lot of, in addition to all of the food that you're talking about, there was also just a sort of over-the-counter supplement that we gave him for probiotics. I mean, do you, do you have a sense for if an athlete or if an individual is, is following a good good nutrition and a good diet in general, is there an added benefit to a supplement that, you know, over-the-counter supplement to further enhance the efficacy of our gut? Probiotics are one of these things that are kind of thrown about and thrown around as mostly by alternative health practitioner as being super beneficial, but there have been, and I can't say that they are or are not, there have not There just haven't been any studies. Nobody's really looked at this in any well-designed, well-controlled fashion to say whether or not probiotics really do confer some of the miracle benefits that people suggest. That being said, they're not bad for you. I eat pickles all the time. I love yogurt. I eat yogurt uh, a fair amount. So I, I, I don't see any downside to probiotics. I especially want to take a, a second just to talk about antibiotics because you mentioned your son's Giardia. That means he had to take antibiotics in order to eradicate the Giardia parasite. And I, I frequently hear people talk about taking antibiotics. And I, I want people to understand that antibiotics – have a huge role in our society, and rightly so. Let's face it, without antibiotics, our population would probably be half of what it is today <laughs> right, because right. you know it was the advent of antibiotics and, and many other things, sanitation and other things as well, that have led to the ability of our population to grow the way it has because of our ability to control disease. However, I think that uh, too often I hear stories of people taking antibiotics for things that, or let's face it, being given antibiotics for things that probably they don't need to be taking them. And, and I think of bronchitis or sinusitis. Those are the two common ones. Uh, if I hear that somebody was given antibiotics for either of those two things, it, it makes me raise an eyebrow because we know that Bronchitis is never bacterial, It's uh, except unless you have chronic lung disease, in which case bronchitis has a specific indication for that. Uh, but for young, healthy people, bronchitis is a viral thing and does not require antibiotics. And sinusitis almost never requires antibiotics. It, uh, it just does not require them. But as a society, we've kind of got this collective thought that, oh, if I'm blowing green stuff out of my nose, it must be bacterial, and therefore I need antibiotics. And too often I hear about people taking antibiotics. Well, I would hope that this discussion would give people pause because taking antibiotics dramatically changes your your gut microbiome. It basically wipes out your microbiome completely and allows for the introduction of antibiotic-resistant organisms, specifically clostridia varieties, to get in and take over. And getting things back to normal can take weeks, if not months, and set you back big time. And I have heard over and over again from people, oh, I had sinusitis, I took some antibiotics, and I'm several weeks out of that, and I'm still recovering in terms of my endurance. No doubt. And part of that might be because they really were sick, they had a bad headache, they were not able to train so well. But I think a big part of it is just because they've changed their microbiome so radically that they're not able to to process carbohydrates and they're not able to train as effectively because of that. So Mm -hmm. I just want people to think long and hard if they have something about thinking to themselves, do I really need antibiotics for this? And talking to their doctors and being clear, you know, a lot of physicians believe that when a patient comes, the patient's not going to be happy unless they leave with a prescription. And talking to your doctor openly and honestly and saying, look, I don't want antibiotics unless I need them. If you don't think I need them, then just say so and I'll be fine. Just knowing that I don't need them is sometimes a good thing. So that's that's something I want people to think about and just mm-hmm. at least keep front of mind because you're right. Taking antibiotics and taking something while we may need to from time to time, it can have serious adverse effects on our ability to perform because of its impact on our microbiome. Now, that being said, if you have to take antibiotics, take them and then do what you can to try and get your microbiome back on track as soon as possible. And that involves eating very healthy and incorporating a lot of probiotics. So we mentioned all of the things, kombucha, tempeh, 
fermented foods like kimchi, pickles, yogurt, cottage cheese. All of these things are excellent, healthy probiotics. And you can buy supplements. You can buy lactobacillus supplements in the form of capsules that you can take. So all of these things are helpful to try and get things back. It still takes about three to four weeks. And the last thing I want to talk about on this topic, because I think it's important, is this notion of the nutritional cleanse. (laughs) So we hear about this a lot. It's bandied about by a lot of nutritionists. They talk about, oh, you need a cleanse in order to get rid of toxins and restore things. I want to be very clear. Unless you were born without a functional liver or kidneys, you don't need a cleanse because those organs are doing their jobs on a daily basis in order to cleanse you and get rid of any toxins you might be happening to to take in. However, if you are having a diet that's very high in pro-inflammatory foods or very high in fats and things like that, your microbiome may be adversely impacted. And doing one of these nutritional cleanses, and I don't mean a juice cleanse, I don't mean any of these things where you're not eating healthy. Doing a, a, a gut reset where you eat healthy for three days and you're eating all these probiotic foods and really, really high nutritional content foods is a great idea to reset your microbiome. But if you don't stick with it, you're going right back to where you were before that. So there is zero, zero evidence. In fact, there's lots of evidence that these cleanses are not good and not necessary, especially the really, the really extreme ones like these water or juice cleanses. But there is a lot of evidence that suggests if you just change your diet and stop eating the bad stuff and just incorporate all the good stuff, you're going to get a lot of benefits from that, even in short term. If you do that just for three days, you can change your microbiome pretty impressively. But in order to maintain those changes, you need to keep those dietary changes going forward. So nice so to change your diet as a sort of cleanse, <laughs> yeah. but, but do it, uh, do it long term. Right. So save yourself the hundred bucks on the fancy cleanse and go get a massage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> well, Julie, do you have any other questions on this specific topic? I think we've covered a, a lot of ground and I hope provided a lot of information that will be useful to our listeners. Yeah, no, that was super interesting. If only the explanation of how the whole system works and the the study on the mice, that's, that's really cool. I mean, what I'd like to see though is, I mean, clearly they've handled the bike and swim elements of the study. I would like to see a mouse, sorry, the swim and the run elements of the study. I'd like to see a mouse on a bicycle to make sure we really round out. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep an eye out. Keep an eye out on triathlete's website in August that will feature a piece that's written by me that's going to go into a lot more detail on that specific study. And I'll keep I'll put a link up uh, on my Instagram account when that comes out as well. Well, Juliet, thanks, uh, as always, for joining me for this segment. It's always a pleasure to do it. If you have a question that you would like uh, us to consider talking about on the medical mailbag, I hope that you'll send it to us. You can reach us at uh, at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or alternatively you can join the private facebook group for the podcast just search for tridoc podcast in facebook answer the three very easy questions i'll grant you admittance you can join the conversation there or add or ask your question and we'll be happy to uh, give it a shot here on the medical mailbag juliet thanks for joining me i look forward to uh, speaking with you again on the next segment thank you jeff I recognize that it is somewhat redundant for me to say that I am excited about my guest on this episode, but what can I say? I get to talk to a lot of really cool and interesting people, and in this instance in particular, my guest brings so very much to the table that it really is exciting to get to speak with her. Tamara Jewett quite literally stormed onto the triathlon scene as a professional, placing fourth in her first 70.3 as a pro at Augusta, and then third in the 70.3 in Buenos Aires just six weeks later in 2019. In 2021, she had several more podium finishes, including her first win at Timberman, and then this year she has had really had her breakout season with an absolutely dominant win over an incredible field, including the likes of Paula Finley, Kat Matthews, and Chelsea Sodaro in Oceanside. She was then second in Aix-en-Provence and sixth at an incredibly deep PTO European Open. We were then both there when Mont-Tremblant 70.3 had to unfortunately be cancelled, and while I could see that she was really upset initially by that announcement, the way that she has responded in the time since has been a real testament to who she is as a person. And all of this is why I'm so grateful that she has made time to speak with me today on the TriDoc Podcast. Thank you so very much for joining me here, Tamara. 
Hi. Yeah. Nice to be here. So your backstory is similar to some of the other pros I've spoken to, like Laura Siddle and Sky Munch. I really want to hear your journey to multi-sport. I started out in sports in track and field. And as is a fairly common story in triathlon, I ended up getting into multi-sport through a, a long series of injuries. In university in particular, I was running into repetitive strain injury after repetitive strain injury with running. And it becomes kind of a comical list when I go through all of them. There were quite a few, a few different things and the, t- the healing timelines were always very, very long. So there were some periods of, of some really promising successes with running, but it was interrupted quite a bit. And the final straw ended up being a tear in my plantar fascia at the insertion point that took 18 months to heal. And during that time, it wasn't really clear that I would be able to ever get back into running. It was it was just the, the timeline and the final result were completely unclear. And I guess a few in the couple years before that, I had started doing some swimming with the University of Toronto Triathlon Club as part of my cross training while I was injured. And I had met Suzanne Zalazzo, who still coaches me now in triathlon. So I eventually went to her that year and asked her to put together sort of a proper training schedule for swim and bike. And I was able to, in Ontario, do some swim bike categories within triathlons, just as something to keep myself sane and, and to keep myself fit. And and in the past, the cross training for running had been a lot of spin bike and pool running. And that that was fine for short periods of time. But for such a long period of time, I, I was looking to have something that could be more of a focus on its own to, to really distract myself as well. And that ended up being a lot of fun. And Suzanne convinced me to try a season of triathlon in 2018 initially thinking that it would just force me to come back to running very slowly and cautiously. And that ended up going really, really well. I did I did an age group season mostly in Ontario, and I loved it. And by the end of that year, I decided that even though running was going well again, and my body was holding up to it, I wanted to stick with with triathlon. Um and also, my because my body was responding well to that, it, that was encouraging. We felt that going forward with multi-sport gave me a better chance of avoiding such prolonged injury problems going forward as well. And how old were you at the time? I was 28 in 2018. So when I started swimming with UFT a little bit, that would have been when I was about 24. And that was kind of off and on, depending on whether I was running or not. So I would swim with the tri club for a little bit. And then as soon as I was healthy to run, I would stop stop swimming and go back to only running. And then I think that that planter tear started, I think, in the summer of 2016. And so then gradual process from there to yeah. triathlon. Pretty amazing, though, to come and really dedicate your swimming that late and still find the success that you had. And that's pretty impressive because so many of us in age group triathlon are adult onset swimmers like yourself. We don't find that kind of success. So it just shows once again, I've spoken to other professionals. It just shows how if you've got that aerobic engine in other sports, it really does translate to swimming and, and just refining the technique is, is, is huge. It's, it's critical. You, you were on track for the Olympics in track and field, weren't you? Is that what you were training for? That is what I was training for. And I think that that was a realistic goal. I think if you looked at my times on paper, they look in some cases like they're a little far from it, like closer at some points and further at other points. In 2016, my training partner at the time, Andrea Sekafine, did go on to qualify for the 5K in, in Rio and is still a professional runner now. I, yeah, I was always kind of trying to, to get there and, and running into these big, big problems. So the 5k was going to be my focus, but I didn't end up getting to 
race that many track 5Ks in the end. Some of my biggest successes were uh, just before that huge injury cycle when at the end of high school, I placed eighth at the World Junior Track and Field Championship in the 3000 meters, which is mostly a junior event. There aren't a lot of senior 3Ks. And I I was just, well, I set the meet record at, at Canadian Nationals that year. And I was just a couple seconds off of the junior national record at the time. So things were, were set up really well. And then I started to run into this process. And so a lot of my bigger successes later were within the Canadian university system and just starting at points to get back into a little bit more international level racing. And and it was really a heartbreaking process for a long time. It, it felt like things would just start to build momentum. And then quite suddenly, sometimes I would be out for three to six months again and again and again. And I want to like take that opportunity you were in the university system because you were in law school right yeah i ended up running with uft's university team for for quite a while through undergrad there and then into law school you have five years of eligibility in the canadian university system for sports and because i was injured there were some years where i wasn't using eligibility so even into law school i was able to run for the university team so not exactly light course load at the same time that you're you're doing all of this incredible athletic work now you actually i want to back up a second and how did you settle on 70.3 as your distance i i would have thought that the olympic distance would have been more natural fit for you yeah i guess when suzanne and i first started looking at this we felt that non-draft legal racing would suit me better, particularly not having as much of a swim background. And my swim is coming along really, really well. And we've put a lot of work into it. But we just felt that the style of racing in long course uh, suited me better. And then the best entry level for that to get into races that are competitive enough was sort of the 70.3 focus. And uh, I I guess that first year when I was doing age group racing in, in Ontario, I did kind of a range of of distances. So I would do anything from sprint up to 70.3 Muskoka as my first 70.3. And, uh, but then just at a, at a pro level, 70.3 was sort of the, the shortest com- really competitive long course distance. And it, it certainly did seem pretty daunting to me at first, but uh, I think is still a good mix of speed and power with the endurance. And similar to the women I mentioned earlier, Laura and Sky, who were both who came to the sport late, who had professional careers, you were working as a corporate attorney. And then what made you decide to walk away from a very high powered professional career and say, you know what, I'm going to take a chance and do this as a professional athlete? It was a gradual process. I guess my my original plan had been that after articling at my law firm and before going back to work for them full-time, I was going to try one year focused full-time on triathlon, make 70.3 Worlds a big focus. That was in 2020 and Worlds was supposed to be in New Zealand. I was going to have a, a wonderful holiday in New Zealand and then kind of put triathlon on the back burner and go back to, to law practice full-time. Uh, and... Just a, a, I guess a mix of different things <laughs> then got thrown into that. The pandemic was one of them. And, and I'm not sure if I would still be in the sport if not for the pandemic because it disrupted my initial assumption about that timeline at the same time that it provided a lot of networking opportunities within Ontario. Um, that like, connected me, for example, with my current swim coach that, that really sort of gave me resources and, and sort of opened up my ambitions in the sport a little bit more. And, and then also because I hadn't fulfilled that initial timeline, I, I ended up negotiating with my law firm to, well, I guess I had, I was going to go back, but then I was like, I still need to do worlds in 2021. And so for a while I was back at the law firm working full time and doing triathlon. My heart from the pandemic and the networking I've been doing and the work I've been putting in there was more and more and more in triathlon. And while I had made that full time balance work well while I was articling, 
it, it wasn't really a sustainable balance and, and without me pulling back a little bit from, from one or the other thing. So I eventually negotiated to work part time at my law firm and the plan was to just continue to do that. And that worked very well for uh, a period of time, uh, but triathlon was going better and better and better. And uh, there was more and more and more work that we really wanted to put into it. And I realized that I was planning a lot of my life around that. And while that was all happening, it was becoming more financially viable gradually with the success to make that a focus. And so it all just kind of evolved gradually. I, In some ways, it was hard to come to a final decision because I really liked my job as a lawyer. And I really liked the firm that I I was working at. They're extremely supportive and just a really good work environment and really engaging, interesting work. But I ended up deciding that the window to to really put all of my eggs in the triathlon basket for a while was a narrow one. And it would be easier to come back to law later than to there wasn't going to be really an opportunity to come back to triathlon at the same level later. And I decided to go for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly pretty much what the others have told me is that they, they figure they can go back to their careers later, but triathlon is a short window and why not to see what you can do while you're, you have that. Now the book on you in the past has always been, she's going to be far back after the swim and bike and just hope like heck it's far enough because if she's in your zip code, you're done. <laughs> so so what changed this year? Because I, I'm watching Oceanside like everybody else. And to my astonishment, you get off the bike and you're basically right there with the leaders. Uh, you had a penalty. Uh, we never saw what the penalty was, but you had a penalty. You get off the bike and you're right there. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, she's going to win. And sure enough, you did. And what changed? I think it's just been finally work that we've been doing over the course of years coming together in in a race. The My bike and swim this year are finally at a level where I'm able to stay closer to the front of the race. And I think the way that that came together in Oceanside, it, it looks or could look a little bit sudden, but it, it's really just part of a progression that we've been working on for a really long time. So for for several years now, we've been each year pushing the bike forward a little bit each year. Swim, we've gone through a big process of changing my technique. And, and I was really lucky to meet Miguel, my swim coach in 2020. And basically since the fall of 2020, we've been just working so hard and and really took a big step back to to work on the the technique and now it's really just finally this year that that's sort of gelling more with my fitness and and improving that swim so it's it's just the work gradually showing up or sudden you mean like it's suddenly showing up but the work has been gradual to to get there and you now we're very focused on keeping that up and pushing it forward even more I would add that I, I think some of those improvements you're starting to see at the end of, of last season, I had 70.3 Indian Wells. I was much closer to Paula than I had been before coming off of the bike. I uh, ended up, I, I forget whether it was five or, or six minutes back, but that was a big improvement at that time. And only a minute back from Danielle Lewis, who had been about nine minutes ahead of me on the bike the year before. So, so I think it's really nice in Oceanside to have a race where it like finally comes together, but that process have been happening over a course of years. Yeah, that's so great. It's so it's got to be so rewarding, and you know, to put in all of that hard work and see it come to fruition like that. So it, that's just great. I'm so happy for you because I know how it feels like for us just to see little marginal gains or little to finally get on a podium or something. But at your level, that's just something else. So something I noticed because I got to see you race a full race for the first time at Oceanside. I was really surprised. I I knew you were a fast runner, but I was surprised at your style and your form <laughs> when running. Is that something you've heard before? Because go ahead. Oh no, I'm just curious what you'll say because I always hate the way that I look a little bit when I run in in triathlon. So yeah, we'll oh, see what you well, say. Well, <laughs> it's interesting to me. Well, it's interesting to me because I had the great 
great fortune to volunteer at Boulder. And I was uh, riding one of the bikes for the pro men. And so I got to spend almost the entire day riding behind Matt Sharp and Lionel Sanders. And the contrast was remarkable. I mean, Matt's got this beautiful fluid form, tall guy, and Lionel's got that infamous, that hitch to his run, but he's so fast. It's just amazing. And in the end, Matt fell off and Chris Lieferman came up and the two of them were running. And again, it was another contrast. And I was watching you run and as you were passing these other women and just flying by them you you have like this this upper body that that you're almost like against a lot of what a lot of coaches tell us as age groupers to do quiet upper body keep your arms forward back only but you you don't you almost reminded me of Paula Radcliffe who, Paula Radcliffe. You don't run like her, but, but Paula Radcliffe was also famous for having a very kind of unorthodox kind of running style, but she was so fast. So who, who could complain? Right. So I, I was, I wanted to know what is that a something you've heard before? B something you ever even like work on? Or is it just one of these things that as a runner, since it works for you, you don't care. You just do what you need to do. Yeah, I think, I think that's the first time someone has brought it up. It's something I think about every triathlon a little bit because I see, sometimes I see footage of myself running, but then often also in, in still photos, I, there's so much crossover in my arm and it's, it's not what I'm trying to do. So I always kind of, I think especially coming from track where the distance runners do have sometimes a bit more of a, a mix of, of different forms, but then you have like sprint specialists who need to be like really precise about the most efficient run technique. And I just like kind of laugh at what my, like the sprints coach at my university would, would say looking at, at these pictures. But I think it is a good example of it's important to think about technique, but that only goes so far. So I, I am, or you don't always need to overdo that work. So so when I'm training, I am thinking about trying to keep my arms lower than that ideally and trying to avoid some of that crossover. And I do think that that is a good habit to think about. I don't ever want still arms because I do feel that the momentum that you generate with your arms can help you with the momentum that you're generating with your legs. So it's it's not wanting still arms, but ideally those arms would be, the momentum would be more in a forward and back motion, but it's, it's something to think about at certain points, but not something I obsess over in my racing or that I feel needs to dramatically, dramatically change. And I want to be clear. I, I I asked the question because I see pictures or film of myself running, and I'm I'm like, oh god. And I, I'm I'm not slow by any means, but I'm not I'm not a natural runner, and I often spend way too much time thinking about what I, my form and what I should look like. And I try to visualize other runners and I'm like, oh, I got to look like that. I got to look like that. And I just wonder, do age groupers spend too much time thinking about their form? And should we instead just think about the results? I think it's worthwhile to think about form, but I think it's one component. So I think, I think paying some attention to it and having portions of workouts where you're, you're thinking about that. And, and even within a race, you, you don't want to obsess over form so much that that might actually be slowing you down. It is always a balance, but there might be portions of a run where reminding yourself about the form helps you get back into a slightly more efficient form. And that might help your speed, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be thinking about it all the time. I think. Yeah, I do think it is always valuable to work on, but I think as a component within a broader training schedule where you're not just feeling like you need to be absolutely perfect from a form perspective before you build on other things, because I think thinking about it that way, people can get a little bit stuck at only form, only form, only form. I, I, and, I, and I actually find that even with swimming, it's to me, I've really slowed down my swim for two years to focus a lot on technique there. But even there, working with my coach, it's a thoughtful process of times where we want my brain to be really busy thinking about the form and to change my movement patterns and other times where we just need the brain to not be so busy with that. And we, we need to find the balance between the way that I naturally want to swim and the most efficient way to swim. And that evolves gradually over time. And at the end of the day, how I look swimming is also going to be a little bit different from how someone else looks swimming. So I think... Yeah, I do think it's really important, but it needs to be mixed in thoughtfully. And, and it's each person needs to kind of discover that balance, but I don't think you can get stuck on it. 
That's a great analogy, the swimming to the running, because we all struggle with the swim, for sure. I, I want to talk a little bit about Tremblant. I was there. I was just a couple of racks away from you, and I could see when the announcement came across, you were, you were visibly pretty upset. Was there a reason for that? Just besides, just obviously, I mean, for pros, it's a much bigger deal than for us. I mean, we sunk, sunk cost for us, but for you guys, it's your livelihood. Was was there something in particular that, that was really upsetting for you when the race was canceled? I, I don't think it was any one thing. And and I don't think, I mean, I think the, the livelihood aspect is an aspect for pros, but I, I think a situation like that, I think is also, it's just hard on everyone, everyone involved in the event because everyone has put a lot of resources into to being there and I like financial, but also like just emotional and, and time. And I, I, takes a lot of emotional energy for me to gear up for a race, whether it's a really big race or a slightly smaller race. I, It's a lot of energy to go into trying to perform my best on the day and being prepared to match the competition that that, that will be there. And and so I, I think just the, the emotional process of preparing for a race and then having it sort of canceled suddenly with, with no no straightforward outlet for that right away. It's, it's just, it is a bit of an emotional process. And I think I was problem solving a lot. I was having some strange things going on in transition that morning that I'd never had to deal with before. So my, my front tire was flat, even though I had released pressure from my, my wheels overnight to try to prevent that from happening. So the mechanic was extremely helpful and we we're getting that fixed pretty quickly, but it was a little unexpected. And then my bike computer that I had carefully charged had lost charge. I, it must have not been quite set into the wall overnight. And I'm usually very, very careful about that. So my husband was like, Luckily, our Airbnb was closed. He was like running back to our Airbnb to get his bike computer <laughs> for me to use. So I was kind of very focused on all of that combined with just the normal emotional buildup. And then the atmosphere as from being there was, was quite strange in transition that morning with everyone wondering a bit about the smoke. The pros were having conversations a little bit about, is this going to go forward? Is it safe for us to do this? I guess we're going to do this. So kind of gearing up potentially for a really hard effort in pretty tough smoke conditions and those moths that were kind of strangely dying everywhere. It was, it was a weird scene. <laughs> it was, it was very apocalyptic. Yeah. I, I actually was amazed how there was a bunch of age groupers just coming who were clearly not going to race. They were like, Oh, I'm just here to get my stuff. I'm not racing in this. Mm -hmm. And when they announced the cancellation, I have never seen this before. There was applause for the cancellation. Mm -hmm. It was, it was, it was, like you said, it was very surreal. But the thing that really impressed me the most was your Instagram post that came out, I think just a couple hours later. And I just want to read it. I've edited it a little bit just for brevity, but I want to read it here because I thought it was so good. Tamara posted, it was a, a somewhat comical picture of herself <laughs> with just sort of shrugging her shoulders in transition. And she wrote uh, four quick tips if your race is canceled. One, if you mentally or logistically need a day off, take it. No, re no season is so dialed in that one day of extra rest will hurt it. So true. Number two, don't stress about extra fuel for less exercise. I used to, and it was a toxic mindset. And I want to come back to that in a second. Three, appreciate the work you did. So uh, the work you did do, you just made sure all your gear was in order and practiced race morning setup and psychology. It's experience that will serve you at the next one. And four, let yourself grieve. It sucks. We all put a lot into getting to these events and getting ready, whatever our level. And it's more than okay to feel a little sorry for yourself and sad. Don't stay there but don't try not to feel it. I thought this was an incredibly thoughtful post, uh, post much needed, I think, by a lot of people who were there. The comments uh, to it were, I think, a testament to that. Talk to me about this toxic mindset about extra fuel. Oh. You're a, a woman in track and field sport. We know all about how that has been a significant cause of distress for too many women who are pushed into eating disorders. Is, is that what you're referring to in that little tidbit there? Yeah, I think all of those pieces of advice are things that I tell myself and that I've learned basically as over the course of a lot of experiences and a lot of different types of, of practical and emotional management around the hard efforts that I put into sport. So I think each of those pieces of advice, not just that one, come from some like just lessons that I've had to learn and, and things that are part of 
you know, my attempt to keep doing sport in a better way and, and to be wiser about how I'm doing it for success. So the, the eating and the fuel one, I had uh, an eating disorder in late high, well, yeah, late high school that progressed through a lot of university. The, the worst year of it for me was when I was about 16 and it took many, it took several years to become physically healthy again after that and many more years to be psychologically healthy again. And there are a lot of different things I'm sure that fueled into the start of that. I think it has a complicated relationship with sport and and running can be a particularly tough sport for this. And a really important thing for me has been to sort of decouple thinking too much about weight loss and thinking about performance in sport and and learning just learning better how how food interacts with my body and how fueling interacts with my body and so I used to approach things from a very restrictive perspective or assuming that I really had to control carefully and restrict what I was doing with fueling around sport and what I found over time is that that it's it's not just that that has been physically unhealthy for me I think mentally that has taken a lot of energy away from uh what I need to do to perform at my highest level and and that my body actually responds much better uh, when I'm not thinking about fuel in such a restrictive way and when I realize that I can be a lot more flexible about it. So I'm careful about what I eat, but I'm not obsessive about what I eat. I And I really do think it's it's not like a one-to-one equation <laughs> in the way that I used to think of like, if this calorie goes in, it has to go out somewhere or it's it's a much more long-term sort of fluid relationship with it. And I think that's let me tune into my body much better and and I think just drives more sustainable and better athletic performances. So I know there's so much to talk about in that, but I hope that's a bit of a an okay no, overview. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for sharing that with us. I really appreciate it. I, I want to mention your fundraiser. You are raising money to match the prize winnings that you had at uh, Trombone last mm-hmm. year in order to donate to a charity that is going to be replanting trees. Will that be specific to the area of the burn or is that just a tree planting organization in Quebec? It's actually a tree planting organization that operates internationally, but funds can be directed specifically to to Quebec or to other Canadian provinces. So I can explain how this came about. So I I have some acquaintances in Stouffville who do age group triathlon, who I kind of met swimming at the pool here. And they actually work for Parks Canada on the Rouge River Urban Park, which which is in on the side of Toronto. And I was really uh, upset by Trombone for a lot of reasons, and and I think upset about what's been happening with the forests here this year, and kind of trying to um, find a way to use that energy in a productive way. I think I've often found myself feeling concerned about the environment in Canada, but but very helpless, and and then just with that feeling of helplessness, realizing that I'm not actually doing, not really doing anything, not even educating myself sometimes about things that I feel very worried about. And so I wanted to find practical ways to start to address that. So I I started by reaching out to um, this couple about how uh, individual people could help in some way, because obviously a lot of these issues are, are managed by governments and sort of public cooperation, it could be hard for individuals to have a sort of straightforward impact or to know exactly what to try to do as an individual. And they had connections actually to people who are already consulting with the government about sort of ecological regeneration after these fires. And the the sort of productive thing that they felt individuals could do was to contribute to tree planting efforts. Um, and through research around that and consulting with them, the organization that uh, I am launching this fundraiser for, uh, One Tree Planted, sort of stood out as being well-established, good at trying to, to fund good quality projects based in science, monitoring those projects and helping individual donors connect what they had contributed to, to the actual project. So they'll send updates actually about the the trees that you have 
planted and 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 I actually noticed that they had a sports outreach manager who I actually just had a call with this morning, which was was interesting. And they actually work with quite a network of athletes that I'm learning more about. So um I really want to make sure that if I was contributing money myself and asking other people for money, that I was prioritizing what seemed to be the best organization that would use that money in the best way. And this one tree planted just seemed really well positioned to do that. So they're actually an American nonprofit, although they do have an office in Montreal. And if you go to their website, you can choose to direct funds to specific Canadian provinces or to forest fire regeneration more broadly. And so I am matching donations in the month of July up to the amount of my prize money from Tremblant last year. And there's a process that I explained on my Instagram account of of how people can show me that they've made a donation. And I'll basically match anything that is for a Canadian project or that is for uh, regeneration from forest fires. I love it. It's great. And I will have a link to where you can see Tamara's Instagram post. That'll be in the show notes. And in addition, I'll link to the charity as well. I want to finish with what's next for you, Tamara. What do you have on for the rest of this season? Yeah. So big August coming up. I, it's a little too, Trombla not happening leaves a bit of a hole in the middle of my season at the moment for the summer, but I ended up deciding there wasn't another sort of major race that wouldn't interfere with the training build for August. And August is a really important month. I'm doing the PTO US Open in Milwaukee, August 5th, and then 70.3 Worlds in Finland, August 26th. Are you going to be going back to Indian Wells in December? I'm not sure yet. I love that race. It's definitely on my radar. We have a few different ideas for the fall season after Worlds. And uh, I think Suzanne and I are going to sit down right after Worlds and, and plan that a little bit more firmly. Right now, we really want to focus on the big races in, in August and see where things are at after that and, and sort of plan the rest of the year after that. And I'd be remiss if I didn't ask if uh, uh, a full 140.6 wasn't in your future. Is that something you are considering? I'm curious about a full. I think I... S- still really want to push improvements in the 70.3 distance. And it's just a matter of see, like, I don't, I don't want, I want to take a full seriously if I do it, because I think I don't have, I think maybe an athlete who's been doing that for years, it's a little easier for them to go back and forth between full and 70.3. But for a first full experience, I want to make sure I'm taking it seriously. It is doubling the distance. It's a huge endurance effort. And so we're, want to be really cautious about how that would fit in with 70.3 training. And I'm curious about looking for an opportunity where we feel comfortable that it wouldn't interfere with that, but it's, it's not the first priority. So it's, it's not, I'm not sure yet when it'll fit in. We're kind of looking, but it's not our priority. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Well, Tamara Jewett, I can't thank you enough for taking some time to talk with, talk with me today on the TriDog Podcast. It's really been a pleasure and a very enjoyable conversation. I wish you nothing but continued success in the future, and I'll hope to see you at Indian Wells, if not somewhere else in the fall. Good luck uh, for the rest of your season. Thank you. Thanks so much. And that's it for another episode. The TriDog Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, 
there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.